Hello, and welcome to the Science Behind Science podcast. My name is Anne Tushar. And I'm Dennis Grenzowitz. Here, we'll take you backstage of research to introduce you to the people behind science and how scientific discoveries really happen. Milana Lagerman is the Clinical Research Supervisor for Cleveland Clinic's Genomic Medicine Institute. Milana received her Master's in Physiology at Case Western Reserve University and her Bachelor's of Science in Biology from John Carroll University. Before her promotion to supervisor in 2020, Milana worked her way from research technician to multiple clinical research coordinator positions between Cleveland Clinic and University Hospital's Case Medical Center. Notably, Milana is now responsible for interfacing between clinical and wet lab teams in her department, acting as the liaison for the Institutional Review Board and bench scientists. This crucial role protects both the fast pace of translational science and the rights of patients. Milana is an excellent leader and advocate for our clinical research team, and on all occasions we've worked with her, we found her to be incredibly knowledgeable and helpful. For the above reasons, we felt Milana would be the perfect guest to give us a broad overview of clinical research and its relationship to basic science. In this episode, Milana covers the design, approval, and operation of clinical research studies and the personnel involved. She also shares her story of how she entered into clinical research, her passion for that line of work, and identifies areas for improvement. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Milana Lagerman. Hi, Milana. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We're so excited to have you. Hi, Anne. Thank you for having me. We wanted to talk a little bit about your path and how you came to be in the position you're at at GMI. You have a bit of a roundabout path. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, it is a good question. So I started actually, you know, I was a biology major and I was on a pre-medical track for quite a bit, actually, uh, most of my life. And when I was an undergraduate in John Carroll, my goal was to go to medical school. However, as we know, that doesn't always work out and life gets in the way, like with anything. I thought, how can I still be with, because I knew that I wanted to have that human element and I wanted to work with people and with patients. So how can I still do something translational and use my scientific background? And then I started thinking about clinical research. However, I went to get my master's in physiology from the Department of Physiology and Biophysics at Case Western, which was still very much basic science. And I'm sure we can talk about this later, but I was not the biggest fan of pretty much sitting behind a microscope all day and completing experiments. And I wanted to have more human interaction. So after that, I branched out and started looking for positions within clinical research. It was difficult because there was a lot of discouragement going on at the time. And I have heard that it is more competitive to get into clinical research versus basic science. So when I got my breakthrough role, I guess, as a initially as a clinical research coordinator at Cleveland Clinic in uh, cardiology, that definitely set everything in motion. So since then, basically, I grew from there. I grew within my role. I started as a research coordinator, too. Then I went into you know, research coordinator three. And then finally, this is how I am, where I am today, a clinical research supervisor. So I guess somewhat of a roundabout, but I'm here now. Yeah, you could definitely talk crap about the basic science research <laughs> a little bit. We know that it's really important that clinical and basic work together. And we'll discuss that a little bit later. But before we get into deep talking about your current role, we wanted to provide basically a primer for clinical research as a whole for our audience. So we know that 
what happens in the wet lab is a little bit different. It's actually a lot a bit different. So could you kind of just explain the general goals of clinical research and maybe dichotomize those against what happens with like pipettes and mice and everything in a lab? Well, of course, like you said, both are very important, but they're to me, they're, they're completely different worlds. So when I look at clinical research, I would say, you know, it's just generally something that looks at safety and effectiveness of medications, devices. We have different diagnostic strategies, treatments for different patients. And the big thing about it, it's human subjects, right? So that's the biggest difference, human subjects versus animal models. So when I was a graduate school, I worked with mouse models very different from human subjects. But of course, you cannot do one without the other. We know there are different phases in trials, right? So we start with preclinical, where we do uh, basic science experiments, and then we can go to phase one, which then we'll have healthy volunteers. And this is mostly, I guess, I'm referring more to drug studies. But for clinical research, basically, we can have something where we're obtaining biospecimens, let's say through an intervention or interactions. Since a lot of my uh, experience is, is within electrophysiology in the cardiovascular department here at Cleveland Clinic, I worked with a lot of devices being implanted. And again, what do I mean by human subject? It's basically someone who becomes a participant and receives investigational treatment, or let's say we're collecting specimens on this subject. So they could be a healthy individual, or they could be a patient receiving this treatment, investigation device, medication, and whatever else we need to investigate. And I guess I should also add that within clinical research, we also have the FDA, which is a pretty much the regulatory entity, and they are the one who can define tissue specimens as human subjects, basically. And they regulate that everything is compliant and is up to code, I guess. We talked about different types of trials, but I think we want to just make sure that they're a little bit clearer to the audience as to the mm -hmm. different types that there are. So there's, for example, drug trials, which is like done by some industry. They've developed a drug and now they want to test it. And then we have our other clinical research projects, like a run-of-the-mill type. Can you just kind of dichotomize those for us a little bit about what's different between the way those two things are done? Yeah. So I guess first thing I would backtrack and say, you know, we have different types of funding for studies, right, and the way and what the studies are. So we have sponsored trials, which is actually where most of my experience lies, right? So within Genomic Medicine Institute, I think we're more used to the um, investigator-initiated trials, which is a whole different world. But in terms of, let's say, sponsors, so sponsors will have, you know, we'll have a protocol design, and we'll start with an idea, and pretty much, as we know, protocol is basically the Bible for the study. And then the sponsors can be divided pretty much into industry, which is 90%, I would say, and it can be multiple sites that are going to be running the study. And then we have an IH, which can be a single site. We know that a lot of our studies are sponsored by NIH. So in terms of drug studies, like I mentioned previously, you know, we have different phases. Say so we have the preclinical phase, and then it can go to, into, without going into too much detail, into different phases, like phase one, phase two, phase three. And then once you get to phase four, Basically, that's post-marketing, uh, and that means at that point, drug has already been approved, and we're just basically trying to get more data. Before that point, we are still investigating. We get good data. We want to move forward. I mean, this whole process could take up to 10 years. This is a very long process. Once we're in phase four, how do you then tell the patient that we still need to do this, right? So, well, you already have the data. Why would I need to be in the study? So then we would say, you know, it's safe. We have proven its safety and efficacy. 
we just need to collect more data so that we can either publish or pretty much remove all the adverse events from the study. Doesn't mean that there are serious adverse events or anything you know major that will affect the participant, but we need to make sure that everything is reported to sponsor in the electronic data capture. Once we have all of that, then we can move forward pretty much with the study. So that's for drug trials. And then for you know just a standard clinical research project, you know, as you guys know, it can be just depends on the study, it depends on the department. Uh, studies can be minimal risk, which means there's minimal risk to the participant. Most of our studies are minimal risk, but of course, sometimes we'll have something that's greater than minimal risk. To stay on the topic of minimal risk versus mm -hmm. uh, greater than minimal risk for a little bit, what does that look like from the investigator's perspective? So for a little bit of background on this question, right, you, Milana, you know this, that I work with a lot of the microbiome studies in Dr. Mm -hmm. Ang's lab right now. And we will collect fecal, mm -hmm. oral, and urinary microbiome samples mm -hmm. and then run post hoc analyses based on the different patient populations we're studying and just try to correlate, you know, what microbes are in the gut, uh, what microbes are in the mouth, and can that be used as a biomarker? So that would be considered minimal risk, right? Correct. How does that look in terms of the development from a regulatory standpoint versus? you know, we're going to implant some kind of device on a human. This is probably a good place uh, to start talking about IRB. Yeah, I would say so. I guess we can also call them the ethics committee, right? We, we call sure. them institutional review board. And every institution has their own, I mean, may have their own institutional review board. But I guess for today's purpose, we can call them our ethics committee because they, they will make that final determination, really, what is considered minimal risk or um, greater than minimal risk, right? And we just know this from experience that let's say if we're doing research on a group of people and we're not doing anything more than, let's say, we normally would. We're not implementing any treatment. We're not, you know, implanting a device. Then we would call it minimal risk, which is also um, somewhat easier to review, I guess, in terms of patient safety. But we also have to make sure, again, with the IRB to outline that in the informed consent which is what we present to the subject to make sure they can basically make an informed decision on the matter and that they're completely informed to understand what's involved in research. And now I guess you asked me what the difference, right, between the minimal risk and then more than minimal risk. For minimal risk, let's say, for example, we have a collection of blood samples, which is just a regular blood draw. The only real risk is just there could be, you know, soreness at the site. Let's say collection of data by something that's non-invasive, that would also be minimal risk medical records or biospecimens, like a biobank. So something that's only collected for research, a survey. And then again, then if we go to investigational drugs or other device studies that may require general anesthesia or anything that may be invasive, then I would say that would definitely be classified as something that is potentially greater than minimal risk. And that's where the RIB comes in. And we have to make sure that everything is done in a way that the subject understands and we're protecting not only their rights, of course, but their safety. First and foremost, that's before anything else. Now, thank you for going into that, because I think that those terms can sometimes seem a little bit vague to us. Mm -hmm. um, people have different ideas of what's minimal risk versus what's high risk. So having a board that reviews that and hearing about how they kind of evaluate those situations has been really interesting and really helpful. So talking more about how clinical research projects are run, we want to get into the individual steps mm -hmm. for this. And we'll probably want to start at the beginning then, where the ideas come for these different projects. 
Can you talk about what goes into the planning of a clinical research project from a scientific perspective? I guess, again, that depends on whether or not it's a sponsor trial or internal. Like for sponsors, I guess, you, you know, a sponsor could have an idea. But again, it's not their responsibility to run the study, right? So you have the sponsor. They get an idea. They want to investigate something. So they design a protocol. I guess the protocol is then the Bible, and then the sponsors will be divided into industry or let's say NIH. And then at that level, then you have also CROs, so or you could, which are clinical research organizations, which are composed of monitors, managers, and they are also they can select sites. They have their own responsibilities. So there are so many different people involved at that level. And then you go into site selection. So this is again, this is just for our sponsor trials because we can have multi multi sites. And then at each individual site, then you will need to have clinical personnel that supports this trial. Again, I think clinical research coordinators are pretty much the backbone of research. As much as, you know, sponsors will have the original idea, they will design everything. They do not carry out the uh, regulatory component. I remember in my last position, I was always told to not rely on a sponsor and say, oh, the sponsor said that, right? So we're, no, because we always have to proofread everything. And I would say the research coordinator has that final responsibility. For the internal studies, like most, most of our department is internal, we have a PI that may have an idea, very ambitious idea. We have a lot of very intelligent, ambitious PIs, and they will pretty much give the idea to our uh, coordinators and say, here you go, write the protocol, write the informed consent, this is what I want to do. And then in collaboration with the RIB, then we can submit the application aims, objectives, and if we can actually do the study, and if we have the resources to complete this as well. I know I mentioned informed consent briefly. That is a huge part of it, right? So not every study will have that. It really depends on the trial. We always need to make sure the participant understands what is being done and that we're compliant, and we need to disclose anything we're doing as well. And let's say if we're sharing data with any other sites or any other collaborators, we absolutely need to have that in the consent and definitely let the subject know that that is what uh, we're going to be doing. And they are allowed to say no. And in that case, they cannot be participants and they cannot be in this trial, which I guess then can also lead to another difficulty with recruitment, recruitment and retention, because those are always the difficult things in research. And the subjects can also withdraw at any point. So again, like it just really depends on what the study is. I forgot to mention before the study can actually start, a sponsor would come out and do a study initiation visit. At that visit, they would make sure that we have all the documentation completed. So we have delegation of logs, delegation of authority, training log, protocol signature page, and that goes into our regulatory binder. And there are actually rules on what a research coordinator would need to put into the regulatory binder. So that, that's a huge thing. So we need to have that study initiation visit before we can proceed. But for internal studies, we haven't had that. Basically, we just have our own protocols and we make sure everybody is uh, trained within our team and we arrange that training. So it's a very different world. It's more selective, but have to be even more careful in the sense that we do not have someone that's going to watch out for us. So when you're saying site, for clarification, that's just like whatever hospital system or like academic institute you're in. Yes. So let's say they chose Clima Clinic to be one of the sites that is yeah, carrying sure. out their experiments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So patients will be seen at that site or that Correct. like institution. Correct. Yeah. 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 Cool. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a medical facility. It could be yeah. an institution or a medical facility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To sit on writing an IRB before we talk a lot about like patient accrual, a funny difference is the IRB is a thing, but then everybody talks about writing an IRB or having an IRB. So that's like a weird jargony thing. 
But so obviously institutional review board is its own thing. But then in order for a project to run, it has to have an IRB protocol. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you run through what an IRB protocol is, how it gets formed, who writes it, who reviews it, and then how it pervades the study as it continues? Yeah, that's a good question. So we have a template here. So IRB provides us with a template for a research proposal. Because all of our studies within, well, I shouldn't say all, but a lot of our studies within GMI are internal. This is what we will provide to our PI. They will have a brilliant idea. You know, we want to investigate this. And in 10 years, this is our goal. And we would provide them with this proposal. Of course, first and foremost, they have to know their aims. What are they actually looking at? What what do they want to investigate? Their experimental objectives, methodology, design. They also, of course, want to mention how they're going to consent and where is the consent taking place? How is it going to happen? What are they going to do about adverse events? What is the definition of adverse event? Typically, it's an untoward medical situation where it is not predicted, right? I'm summarizing, but some studies don't have adverse events and they don't anticipate there to be. What are you doing for monitoring? Is there a committee? What are you going to be doing for data? Where is data going to be stored? Is there a database? How are you going to make sure to protect it? So they need to see that we are protecting subjects' data and making sure that if we ever share anything, everything is de-identified. So basically, that's you know the gist of it. So the protocol is either coming to us from a sponsor, and usually we don't really change the initial version of it unless there are some amendments that need to go in. With internal uh, protocols, we have a little bit of more of a leeway, I, I guess, in terms of what. We want to carry out, and I know, Dennis, we had that experience where sometimes we just have to change certain language because studies are dynamic a lot of times. Changing what you actually want to investigate, that is a completely different study. But if we're just addending something simple and adding it to the protocol, then we can always make, uh, and we call it an addendment to their initial protocol. And that's also that also gets submitted to the IRB. For what's within the protocol, like I said, the most important things, methodology, design, consent, adverse events, and what your goal is. If I can ask one quick question too about the IRBs, who is in that? What is that made up of when someone reviews the IRB? Is there like lay people, professionals, scientists, like who's all in that? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So I know that they have to have at least one person that doesn't have a science background from an ethics perspective. But the rest, honestly, I don't think we know necessarily who is always the reviewer, right? Until it actually gets reviewed. And maybe that's also done. And maybe that's also good for the study site sometimes. It's a dark room of people that are all like kind of <laughs> hidden under twilight. Highest level of secrets. But I, I think that's a good thing. It protects everyone's involvement. I think it's best for the patients. Speaking of the patients, uh, to talk more about the informed consent process. So you're not handing a patient the whole IRB protocol, right? Like that's not how this works, no. which there's a there's a conversation to be had at some point or some day whether or not that would be better or what whether or not patients should be like that far up to speed. I think a lot of people would say no just because there's a lot of I don't know bureaucratic weight involved in the IRB process. So is the informed consent just a stripped down version of the IRB? Is it just what the patient needs to know? Like could you break down what the difference is and why the informed consent is set up the way it is? Yeah, so you definitely do not want to give the protocol to the patient unless you want to make sure you have zero patients enrolled in the study. <laughs> a lot of our protocols are over, what, at least, I mean, I think the, the smallest protocol I worked with was maybe 12 pages still. Yeah. You know, so the consent is pretty much the informed consent. So the main purpose of it is to inform the patient in layman terms, pretty much. 
and it's supposed to be written, I think at this point, like seventh grade level, right? So it has to have just a general introduction to the study. So basically it starts with why are you being asked to participate? And this is what is expected of you. You always have to make sure that the informed consent outlines what is expected from this patient and very, very concrete and very simple terms. You have to come in for a blood draw at this point, let's say it's a baseline visit. Then a follow-up, we have an AKG, ACO, this is everything that's required from you, right? And then it goes into purpose, key information, and then you absolutely have to include potential risks. And then numbers that they can call if they have any questions or concerns or if something happens, usually you include the RIB number. Because there were a couple of situations where I guess they have called the RB and complained. And not personally, I haven't had that happen, thankfully. And of course, the PI, you have to have their information and their number. And again, it is a st standard IB template. And they pretty much tell us what language can be changed and what language cannot be changed. Like some language about confidentiality and monitoring and data security that usually cannot be changed. And then, of course, you also have to say that they have the right to withdraw at any point. So the patient can quit whenever they want, right? Let's say they even made up their mind. They want to go through this. And then the day before, they say, you know what? No. Or the more, I do not want to do this. They have the right to withdraw at any point, And we have to tell them this. Of course, again, in the consent, we tell them where the data goes, how secure it is, and what their rights are. But again, very layman terms. You do not want to go into experimental methodology or what the monitoring committee does. And at the end of it, you, ha you have a signature line for the participant and the research coordinator. So the participant signs if they're okay with everything they want to be in the study. And then the research coordinator, that consents the subject signs as well and dates. Those two things are very important and that has to be done properly. So an informed consent is for the patient to have and make an informed decision on what they want to do with their treatment or trial. And I think another key factor here from my understanding is like the patient can always ask more questions. That's right. If they need further That's clarification. Right. Like it's not like they are put in the dark. You could either sign or not sign this piece of paper to have this potential research project go on on you. Yeah, I think that's also the place and time for the presentation of consent. Yeah. Because I know that when you present consent, that's a nice opportunity for them to ask all their questions that they might have. Mm -hmm. I want them to be want to talk more about why we also present the consent in addition to just having them read it. Because yes. if, I know we said we make it very simple. We put it in layman's terms, but I, I'm sure you want to also cover the basis. So um, maybe speak to why we want to present as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And usually the research coordinator wrote the consent. They want to make sure the patient knows exactly what's involved. And I guess I think it also adds kind of like a, a, um, a human element. So you're making the patient feel safer because if you just walk into the room and just hand them this piece of paper, like here, read it. What do you think? They're not going to care. And a lot of times they're so overwhelmed with already everything else that they have going on. You're probably going to get a no. And also that that's not proper in terms of the regulatory <laughs> compliance, right? So you want to be able to have a conversation with them and say, this is what we're doing and why this is important. And also it gives you that opportunity to go through it with them and ask them, do they understand what you're telling them? So kind of have them either read it back or present it back to you. We give that suggestion to a lot of research coordinators. If they're able to pretty much tell you in maybe a few sentences, this is what you're asking me to do, then you're good. They have to be able to understand. Uh, on an individual, like ethical basis, it's yeah. critically important yeah. that the person that's actually in the room with you understands what's happening. And it builds trust. Yeah, it builds exactly. Trust from like a team level. And it also how you present it, right? A lot of people have their own style. Sure. 
what mm. would you want to hear? If this of is course. your family member, mm -hmm. what would you tell them? What would you recommend? And we know that sometimes with, when they're coming for a lot of clinical appointments, research can be put on the back burner, right? Because they're so yeah. overwhelmed. And we want to make sure that it's still very important. And if you're there in the room with them and making them feel you know, more secure and assured, it, it definitely, it, it helps. Like I said, and then it, it, they also feel like they have just one, that one more person that is going to be look, looking out for them. And when I was a research coordinator, I always said, you know, please reach out. If you have any questions, you know, I'm here for you as well. I know you have your whole team. And then they usually appreciated it. And I had a lot of phone calls and they felt like if they couldn't reach the doctor that they could call the research coordinator. Sometimes it's just for support. It's a really awesome role, honestly. I think that that's one of the hidden values as to why the research coordinator job is so fun. I mean, at the end of the day, like you get to facilitate the process of individuals participating in research and like using their experiences to like help move science forward, even if, you know, that individual person can't do it in the lab themselves. So it's, it's a really cool position to be a part of. So we talked about consenting. We talked about the process of a patient coming in, signing some paperwork if they want to join a trial. The next thing we wanted to ask you about was the process of biobanking samples and like what a biorepository is, because that's mm -hmm. kind of a new thing that I think that a lot of institutions should be considering starting yeah. up. So Let's say a patient comes, gives some kind of biosample. Where does that go? What happens? Like if I give a fecal microbiome sample for a clinical yeah. trial, where's my poop going? Yeah. So <laughs> I guess, again, it depends on the study. In the Heart and Vascular Institute, we did not know. We just collected it and we sent it over to spawn or to whoever. And, yeah. and that was it. But mm -hmm. with our biorepository, you're right, we're very lucky because it's right on the floor. So we know that those samples are going right in our biorepository and they either get cataloged, stored or uh, for future use or processed immediately. But basically bi biorepositories or biobanks, because I know we have one for our uh, director, Dr. Eng, they store biospecimens like blood, urine, plasma. And the one thing we want to make sure is, you know, it's de-identified de clinical information from these research participants. And again, it can also be a collaboration amongst investigators. And then you can have this donate, I guess we call them donated samples, right? Because they can be stored indefinitely a lot of times. Previous labs I've worked in, a patient sample will get de-identified and then thrown in the lab's personal minus 80 yeah. freezer and stay there. But yeah. I really like the idea of moving towards bio repositories generally, yeah. just because it streamlines the process, it allows for, as you mentioned, more smooth collaboration, and it turns it more into a system where the samples can get used efficaciously instead mm -hmm. of just for like a singular project. So there's more bang for the buck for the patient, honestly, to participate. Yeah, for sure. Generally, once you've had the samples collected your patients, this is pretty much the sponsor at this point, right? So what do they do with this data? Or as I should ask too, when can the patient see the outcome of this? So you're talking about once we have, let's say we collected the blood draw, we get the data, the AKG echo, and this is a sponsored trial, right? So what we would do is, well, let's say we're collecting echo information in the procedure, or we got lab results. So first of all, let's say there are some clinically significant uh, lab results that we obtain. A lot of times we report it to the sponsor. And then the research coordinator that's on the trial that's responsible for this would put this data into this electronic data capture form. And then the sponsor would go in, look at all the data, see how that looks. If there's a question mark or if there's an adverse event that may have not been completed or they're questioning that something may be an adverse event, but we overlooked it, 
they would put a question mark and it would be queried and that could take days. And it's not even on us. A lot of times it's just all these little minute details that you don't think about it because you're not doing the analysis, right? You're pretty much doing everything up to that point. In the course of the study, the patients don't really have access to the right. data, right? So it's really only afterwards when it's published, so to speak. Or do you also reach out to them after the study's over and say, look at what we've done and this is what you've been a part of? Like, how do you present that to them at the end? Yeah, a lot of the times patients call their physician or the PI and ask if there have been any findings and what they're thinking. There's not a lot of follow through. And I think that is something that probably something to look into. And one of the purposes of clinical research is to make sure that patients are communicated with very well. Some studies are listed on clinicaltrials.gov. So we tell them they can go and look and see. So they have that option. But a lot of times from what I have found, they've, ca- they've been calling physicians and see if, uh, if there has been a manuscript and what they have found. I think that can also help create long-term relationships with patients if we have a better maybe process and a system for communicating findings to them. Yeah, I think that that was one thing that I wanted to bring up as like a discussion point maybe later, but we could talk about it now is that it's almost kind of unfair to the patient in some way because paper might not come out for another six years. Everybody on that clinical team might be gone. The doctor might have switched facilities. The sponsor is doing something else and the patient goes, well, I donated blood like six years ago for this random trial. What happened there? So I think a streamlined way of communicating that information would be really awesome. Do you have any ideas for that that you've run into or talked to people about? I think a lot of it is dependent upon the right trial design and also how well we're selecting these participants. We have to make sure to select the right patient population. I think if we want to empower patients, communicating everything clearly and telling them right off the bat, right, this is what's happening. You may not be able to to know what the findings are until maybe a few years down the line, but we want to make sure you understand and ask the right question. I, I wonder if there's something like... Um, patient advocacy group that maybe can be created just for that purpose. And, you know, they can convey this information to these patients and about clinical trials in general. But also the one thing we do always say in the consent and to the patient, I always try to make that point is in the consent, we also have the language for benefits. Are there any benefits to me? Right. Because that's the one question that they always want to ask and we say, even if, there, even if there is not a direct benefit, this is something that will benefit future society, future science. So you may not benefit directly, but we are trying to find treatment for this disease or find this drug. And this will help other generations to come. And usually they like that. And I think it's a very good thing to do. If you're helping science, I think that's always, always, always good. They just want to feel like they are empowered and they're in control. Like any human, we want to feel like we are in control of our own treatment and life. (laughs) Yeah, that's the really cool part about individuals who choose to participate in clinical trials, too. There's not usually like a financial incentive that's Mm -hmm. more than, I don't know, enough for transport or something, right? And those are bespoke cases anyway. Knowing that they're getting into this for the purpose of helping out other people that might be afflicted with the same situation as Mm -hmm. they are, I think that's really cool. Uh, And I think it speaks to the good nature of humanity. So that makes me feel warm and fuzzy a lot. Uh, But we wanted to talk with you a little bit, Milana, specifically about your job in particular also today. So we, we just spent a while talking about clinical research generally, and that was really awesome. But you now sit as this director or controller of a lot of the different trials going on or a lot of the different projects going on. So could you explain your job in particular, what you do, what the responsibilities are? 
how you do what you do, the people you interact with, and then finally, maybe some of like what the benefits are uh, in terms of like what you like about the job. So I am a clinical research supervisor, right? So I supervise a clinical research team, which is composed of research coordinators. Like we said, that is the backbone of our research studies and our uh, lab personnel. So research technologists, technicians, and our lab manager that run the biorepository. We can't have one without the other. So basically my main role is to ensure that we start these studies and we make sure everything is compliant from start to finish. We carry out all the regulatory components properly, that everybody's trained, everyone knows what, you know, what their roles are and responsibilities. A big part of my role is ensuring that we have the delegation of authority logs and training logs for everyone and that they're signed off properly and that no one can participate in any research activity until they are properly trained. I review informed consents. That's also, I work very closely with ARB as well. So I'm, I'm kind of the... I'm the little ethics person within the department. So, and then I work with, with the major ethics committee. And it is also a leadership position. The administrative portion is hiring personnel that is appropriate and that will fit in with a team that is passionate about research, passionate about science, wants to learn more and wants to participate in these trials that will have an effect on humanity and making it better. I guess in a nutshell, I mean, that's, that's a big part of it. A lot of it is the... The management component is having individual check-ins with people. And of course, the final goal is always making sure we have a clinical research team properly trained. We are the service to these PIs and we are helping them carry out this research, which is extremely important. And it's genetics research and it's rare genetic disease, which is fascinating in its own right. And just to be able to work with something like that is a privilege on its own. How did you decide that the lab wasn't for you, but clinical research was? You said you wanted more patient interaction. So can you talk about that and how you came to that decision? Yeah, basic research is still one very, very important, right? We wouldn't be able to do any trials without it. And even in medicine, right, physiology, biology, basic science, cell culture, all of those labs and classes were so important for understanding what goes into it. But I think I'm more of like a bigger picture kind of person. I'm not, uh, not, not to say that I, I'm pretty good with attention to detail, but in terms of all these uh, minuscule details and microscopes and everything and slides, it was fun while it lasted, but you know, it's a, it was a temporary relationship. <laughs> um, my thing was always working with people. I love working with people and it probably fits very well into the fact that now I'm the manager. So that has that leadership component because I get to talk to people daily. And not always necessarily just strictly about science, but their progress, their growth and whatever else. So I just wanted, for me personally, I always wanted to see the bigger picture, which for me was easier through translational science and talking to this patient and helping them understand what their next couple of years may look like. And it is so exciting because then you can see when they first enroll into a study to two years later. If they make any you know, progress, especially in cardiology, I, when I saw that, you know, they had tachycardia or atrial fibrillation or whatever arrhythmia they came with. And then two years later, they're saying they're doing so much better, their normal rhythm. And, and it's just amazing to see. And you form these relationships. And I think a lot of it, and I'm a very, I guess, in terms of like, I'm more of a sentimental person. So when you form these long-term relationships, you also form trust. And that helps with research overall. 
So I just wanted to make sure I was able to help. And I feel like from a clinical research standpoint, I could help more than I would if I was behind a microscope. But again, for some people that works very well and you have to have a certain type of personality, I think I was more of an extrovert from that perspective because I got energy from working with people rather than working inside of a lab, carrying out experiments. It just wasn't, it wasn't me. I wanted to be uh, in medicine and around people. Milana, are you saying that we aren't extroverted? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm very conflicted about you, Dennis. I think you're probably a mix, but Anne, uh, I think Anne told me she's an introvert. <laughs> yeah. So. I think it depends on the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We all ambiverts anyway. <laughs> exactly. One thing that I wanted to ask you, and it, it's come up in our conversations outside of the podcast, just in working together. Can you talk about the value of clinical researchers understanding a little bit about what goes on in wet lab and vice versa? Because I've run into many times where the clinical team might not know what we're doing and then we have like no idea of the jargon that's being used by the clinical team. So could you talk about maybe how the two groups could intersect a little more? Yeah, that is a great question. I think maybe that should also be one of uh, or my or our future goals to make sure Sure. we have that a, a better connection between the two teams. I think we are lucky here because we have more of that because we have the biorepositor on the floor and we actually get to come in and see what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But in my experience, that is not usually the case. No. And it's, and it's terrible. It's rough, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can only speak from my experience, right? And on the clinical research side, I think there's a lot of disconnect from the regulatory component. Mm -hmm. From what I'm seeing is that a person can be running all the experiments, but they may not know why you need all this regulatory uh, maintenance and what that actually means. And that's why we have to have dedicated staff for that. And that's why I think to actually run a clinical research study you need a very big team that's on board and knows how to work with each other. And it's a huge team effort. But I agree, Dennis. And I don't, I don't know if we need liaison, but we need a way to make sure we are working together and there's more education and training on what goes on. Maybe some like sabbaticals, maybe like a two-week <laughs> sabbatical for uh, CRC I don't to know. jump into they a lab and like vice that. versa. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. Field trips. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> We went into some aspects of clinical research that we would like to change. I think we already talked about how we want some more people to bridge the gap between clinical and the bench. We also talked about patient advocate groups more so just to keep them abreast of what's going on. Is there anything else about clinical research that if you could change about how it's done, you would? Well, in terms of advocacy groups, I think that's always a good idea. There has to be a way to, um, and I think we're always progressing towards it. And I think we have so much further along now than we were. Let's say if we talk about the origins of clinical research and, you know, Nuremberg trials and all that, we have come so, such a long way. And if you actually look at it, it wasn't that long ago. No. Um, so I do have to say we have come a very long way and hopefully we'll keep moving even further. But I would say creating long-term relationships with patients, that's a huge one for me. And again, some research coordinators are very great at having those relationships and some have different styles. But I would say one of the things that we always struggled with a little bit is retention, participant retention. Again, depending on the trial, because if it's just a one-time visit, usually not a problem. But a lot of the studies that I have been on, it's been multi-visits over five years, a lot of things that are involved. And patients do withdraw and they have the right to, of course, we understand, but we need to think of a way to have greater retention because not only does it help our, of course, data and data quality, but also provides confidence. And again, trust 
I remember getting this question a lot. Well, how many patients have you enrolled so far? And then if you say, oh, you're our first one, even though it's completely safe, they do not like to hear that. Yeah, I'm sure. So again, a lot of it is about numbers, although it's not about numbers. It's also about the human element. So just to, uh, again, humanize it even more so and find a way to retain these patients over their course of study. I mean, that would be my ideal vision, I guess. To stay on the uh, vein of talking about a patient's perspective for a bit before we wrap up here, if there are any patients listening, considering about joining a clinical trial or something like that, what questions do you think they should be asking their care providers at the time of consent? What should they be considering? And what's kind of your elevator pitch to join? Well, my elevator pitch would be that uh, the cliche statement of, well, this is a benefit to society, right? Although it sounds, but it's true. It is absolutely true because we... um, this is how we have, you know, medicine, really, we're very dependent on these trials and research and intelligent and amazing people like you guys that help actually make this happen. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't have it without it. So I would say we will know more about the disease or treatment, and this will help future generations. And maybe we'll be within that personal generation. Who knows? I mean, that's the goal, right? Uh, just to better society and science. That's, a, that's what I would say. A lot of the questions, I guess, that they ask their uh, providers, of course, is, do you feel like I should do this? And do you think there's a benefit? Again, it all goes back to the benefits. And is there any harm? Depending on the study, again, it is the research coordinator's responsibility to be very clear and tell them of any potential risks and how they're going to protect them. Gotcha. We're going to wrap up here with this last question for you today, Milana. We've talked about your path. We've talked about your aspirations for clinical research. Can you give us some advice that you would give to your previous self about pursuing a career in this field? You know, just do it, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, I had some advisors who told me that this is a very competitive. I think Anne and I talked about this, that this is a competitive field and it's much harder to get into than uh, basic science. I don't quite know why, but maybe at the time, that's what it seemed like. But I would say just try it out and see what happens. A lot of my life has been, I guess, not what I thought it would be or not necessarily going according to plan. And I understand that's probably true for a lot of people. But for me, it's almost now an addiction to pretty much step outside of my comfort zone. Because once you do that, once you know what you're capable of, and again, not to sound cliche, but life begins outside of your comfort zone. And there's actually a lot of growth that can happen there. A lot of the magic that happens within clinical research is when you try something new and step outside of that and really, really try. Um, So that, that would be the only advice just try and see what happens. I never thought I would be in this position right now, to be honest. I never thought I would be a leader. That wasn't even on my mind when I was going to school. And a a lot of it, it seems like a lot of the things we think we're running away from, they end up catching up with us anyway, like lab. Never wanted to be in the lab and ended up spending five years in the lab. And then, uh, yeah, and then I got this leadership position and I actually, you know, it's, uh, it's been amazing. And again, I could never see myself doing something like this. So I would just say, go for it. Awesome. Thank you, Milana. And also you haven't escaped the lab. You still have to talk to me about it. So no, I was trying really hard. Uh, Luckily, it's only sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Milana. This is all really good information. We really appreciated your time. And I think a lot of people will be thankful for the information that you provided. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much.
This conversation with Milana allowed me to reflect on experiences I've had working in clinical research alongside research coordinators. Milana described research coordinators or RCs as the backbone of clinical research studies, and I couldn't agree more. Being an RC is really interesting in the sense that there's a very technical regulatory component coupled with a human interpersonal element. From what experience I've had, I know that on one end, research for a lot of paperwork and documentation, on the other side of it, you have to know how to interact with people, particularly how to build their trust and help them understand the value of the research and the value they bring to it by being part of it. I feel like scientists can get caught up in the technical stuff and lose sight of the big picture sometimes, which makes sense since they generally don't interact with patients. But research coordinators have to have their feet in a lot of different sandboxes and play around a lot of people's stuff. They have the scientific regulatory stuff and then the patient stuff. I feel like a job like that helps you constantly see the big picture, as Milana said, and I think it's really cool career for those who are interested in that sort of thing. Yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more. However, with my reflection today, I wanted to highlight the importance of clinical researchers and bench scientists meeting in the middle in terms of being able to interface and communicate with one another. I definitely agree with you that the clinical research coordinator job is multifaceted and requires having a bunch of big picture skills. But unfortunately, I think I've seen a couple instances where there's a big disconnect between clinical research and basic science, and really it's no one's fault. Milana touched on this throughout the chat, and I really wanted to emphasize this issue just because the two worlds kind of exist separately from one another. I've seen a number of instances where bench scientists don't have the necessary understanding of clinical jargon or compliance paperwork, and also where clinical researchers lack the background of what really goes on in a lab. This sticking point has also actually tangibly impacted me already, as projects I've worked on have been held up by general mistranslations between the groups, and sometimes a lack of understanding of what IRBs cover from the lab side of things. This is kind of a systemic problem to deal with just because it's difficult to train clinical research coordinators about lab techniques, and it's also sometimes kind of hard to get lab people onto the clinical side because of all the different hoops to jump through. But I think one way to uh, supplant this problem in the future might just be to get some cross-training going on. And I think these steps would actually, in the long run, speed up projects a lot, even if it's a big investment in the beginning. So I guess in my experience, if I was looking to hire lab folks for a translational project, I definitely want them to have a little bit of clinical background. And if I was a PI looking to hire a research coordinator, I would hope that they spend some time in a lab at some point. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Science Behind Science podcast. We look forward to catching you next time.